For part one of our seventh interview, Dr. John Petroza chats with Dr. Dan Martin. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. So Dan, tell me a little bit about, about sort of Grady Hospital and some of the early early days from what you remember. So my first experiences in the Grady Hospital was when I was five years old and my father was making rounds. He, was a, he, was a, he did a surgery residency there, so I got to go there while he was a resident. Uh, the old hospital was directly across the street, but directly across Butler Street from the nursing uh, uh, facility, nursing, the nursing uh, dormitory. So they had a nursing dormitory, nursing school. And if you were in Grady's in the 1970s or 80s, it was where the medical school parking lot was then because that hospital was torn down about 1954 or so. Uh, but I knew, I knew the underground area down in there as well as anybody, uh, because I, that's where that's where I went through as a five-year-old. Uh, going there when I was a, a, a junior medical student was just a wonderful thing because it was a wonderful place for training, for education, uh, in terms of just hands-on education. Wasn't very academic, and we'll come back to that later because it was a difference between my first, second, and third year in residency at Hopkins in terms of where I was compared to the other residents. But the Grady's was a hands-on place. We did almost everything. I delivered 180 babies as a medical student. Wow! So it was it was <laughs> just uh, anything 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 you wanted to do, anything you would do, they they get out of your way and let you do it. Uh, when I when I would I was I used to sew in the emergency room as an extern to make money because they needed extra people sewing all the time. And the nurses rapidly found out that if there was a pediatric case, they wanted me sewing up the kids. I was one of the few people who sewed and had the mothers in there helping me. Most <laughs> everybody wanted the mothers out of their way. I wanted the mothers with me. I figured if the mothers, if the mothers were there to help me, I'd be in good shape. Wow. Uh, I actually had one kid who must have been probably 12, 14, could have been 10 for all I know. And I'm sewing. He says, I can do that. <laughs> I said, sure, you can. Here. So I gave him some gloves and let him sew with one hand because he was sewing his hand up. So he couldn't sew with two hands. He's only sewing one hand. <laughs> I, had him I had him deadened up real well. So he didn't have to do anything other than just get the needle in. So I let him put put the needles in and I'd, I'd, switch, I'd tie it for him. It was just an interesting place to be. Uh, that, that's it, incredible. That's inc I mean, I can't imagine, you know, a medical student doing 150 deliveries, you know, in, in 2021, it just doesn't happen anymore. So yeah, we, we, hope, we hope they get to deliver one or two or three. Right, now. right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just a different world. So so your father was in medicine. What did your mother do? My, my mother at that point in time was a secretary. Uh, as we had, I have seven brothers and sisters. So as more kids came along, my mother stayed more and more at home. <laughs> or, more, or more and more running the taxi service for all the kids and everything they were doing. That that uh, sounds like a, a strong a strong woman to be able to take care of that many kids. Oh, amazing, amazing person! I don't know how in the world she managed to do it. Uh, she had she had plans, contingency plans for different things. Uh, we used to go shopping. That's back in Atlanta in that in that era when I was probably seven, ten, fifteen, seven, ten, twelve years old. Something we'd go to shopping at, at Rich's at that point in time, which is and now is Macy's. It was, uh -huh. it was, but it was two five or seven story tall buildings across the street from each other with a uh, bridge between them. 
And we'd go in and she'd look at us and say, if anybody gets lost, go straight to the TV shop, TV place, and sit down and watch the TV until I find you. So we'd so the older ones, after we'd been there a few times, the older ones immediately got lost as soon as we were there so we could go watch TV. Uh, and we just sit there and, and sometimes some, somebody from the store would ask stories. She said, our mother told us to sit here till she came back. <laughs> and they were okay with that. This was, yeah. this was a different time and era. I'm not sure if they, I'm not sure if they'd let kids do that. No, they, no, that's for sure. That wouldn't happen anymore. I think some parents would get in trouble if they did no. that. No. Um, so, so is part of the reason you went into medicine because of your father and the fact that you had oh, that yeah, we had my, my grandmother had it in her, her mind that all of us were going to be surgeons. <laughs> my grand, all the, all the, all the boys. Yeah. So she had it in her mind, all the boys would be surgeons. Uh, so I've got three brothers who are physicians, one, one chest surgeon, one gastroenterologist, one, one, uh, what's the other one? He must be some urologist. <laughs> and then a cousin who's a physician and he was a he was a pathologist and we right now have two dermatologists and the grandchildren so that, so that pathologist brother must have gotten teased because let's you know pathologists not like surgery <laughs> no he was he was he was he had boards in internal medicine pathology had a law degree and a business degree People just, he, he did pretty much whatever he wanted to do and didn't do any certain, he did what he wanted. He was smart enough to do whatever he wanted to do. So we just stayed out of his way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the, the, the cool things I, I, I learned about you going through your, through your history, and, and, and I think why it struck a chord with me is that my kids, um, I have one more left in college and, and she's a senior, but they're all student athletes. They're all big time swimmers. And, yeah. you know, I was fascinated with the fact that you played soccer at Emory. That's why I asked you for that picture uh -huh. um, of when you played soccer, because I don't think people realize how tough it is to be a student athlete. Number one, right. You got to play your sport and you got to also do your schooling. Um, but that it just takes, it takes a certain type of person to be a student athlete. You, do you have any fond recollections of that time when you were playing soccer? Well, my, mine was a little different. This is Division Two. Yep, it's all right. Non still, non scholar non scholarship Division Two. Yeah. So the coaches hoped everybody would show up for practice. <laughs> so maybe maybe so, it is a little bit different. So I, I actually, I had, I was, I was, I had redshirt opportunities at both Georgia and and Georgia Tech, and decided not to do those for the exact reason that you talked about. And that was, I didn't want to go be a five-year athlete being more ready for athletics than for getting ready for medical school. Because I had a, my, my purpose was to go to medical school by that point in time. There had been a time when I was thinking of engineering or physics, but by that point in time, it was medical school. So I pretty much knew exactly what I was going to do by then and, and did, didn't, didn't know OBGYN, but I knew it was going into medicine. Uh, at least, at least it kept you fit. Kept me fit. Oh, and, and three weeks. So I, I went, I went to Emory having given, having turned down scholarships at two small colleges and offers to come in as a red shirt at Tech in Georgia and uh, got there. And for the first three weeks, wasn't playing anything and realized I had no idea what in the world to do with myself on a Saturday. If I wasn't playing, <laughs> I played football since I was in the fourth grade. Yeah. So I had eight years of football behind me and track and, and basketball and a little bit of this and that and the other. 
and just decided I go learn. And Emory had a soccer club. So I went to learn to play soccer. And it was the, the club played basically. And that, at that point in time, even though it was Division Two, Emory as a whole, there were no divisions for soccer. It was mm-hmm. all, there just weren't that many soccer teams at that point in time. So everybody played everybody. Gotcha. Uh, if, if, if there was somebody to be played, we played them. University of Georgia, we played the University of Georgia and Vanderbilt and Davidson and all sorts of other teams that would have been Division One, except they were playing club teams also. Uh, and and enjoyed that. I mean, I just had a good time with that. I, I started out, I think that picture, I guess, when I was still playing football, that was when I was a freshman. So yeah. here I played, played fullback. I played midfield and forward the rest of the time. Well, yeah, well, divisions are a little bit different now. You know, division ones are really competitive. And division two, one of my kids swam division two. And, and actually, division two is where the guaranteed money is, Dan, because when you go into division two, that money is yours all four years, whether or not someone comes in and, and is better than you. Oh. Uh, whereas division one, it's you, you, you got to be good. And if you're not good enough and someone comes in better than you, they get they get the money. Mm. So uh it's a little oh, bit I didn't, I didn't have I didn't have that problem. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> you're you're very unique in the fact that you've worked with some of the really great IVF doctors in this country. Um, and you've worked with some of the great reproductive surgeons, not only in this country, but, but in other places as well. I mean, just looking at one of the photos you sent me where you're, you're there with the Joneses and John Rock and some of these, you know, superstars in, in IVF and surgery. And then another picture where you're there with um, Jacques Donnet and, um, you know, some of the great reproductive surgeons at the time. I mean, to me, that's, that's very unique. And I think something that we don't see as much nowadays. Um, what are, what are some of the, the things you missed the most about those times? Oh, just there was the, the funding we had at that point in time compared to the funding that people have for research. Now we had the funding to do pretty much anything we wanted to do because surgery was, was paying more. I had in those days, I had 14 different cases, 14 different operations that paid more than delivering a baby. By early 2000, I didn't have a single operation that paid more than the delivery of a baby. Just the reimbursement rates had changed. Just the the drives for surgery changed over time. So the emphasis that was placed on reimbursing surgery affected the amount of research we were able to do and the amount of uh, care we were able to give at that level, particularly in a research level, that we, we, if you wanted to. If you didn't want to, you could get rich real quickly and, and have a wonderful time. Uh, if you didn't, if you didn't do research and spend money on that, you made you, you kept a lot more money than I kept. Uh, even doing research, I kept I kept enough money that I didn't want to let, I didn't want people to know how much it was at that point in time. Yeah. By the 2000, 2010, I was complaining as much as anybody, everybody else about not about being over underpaid. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the night, early 1990s, I just didn't say anything to anybody. Right, right. So, you know, you were, you were at Hopkins. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about that time. Well, Hopkins was, a, it was an interesting choice for me because I really did plan to stay at, at the Grady's. But this was back in the day and time when, yeah, we, we, had, we had the uh, match. But in, in our day and time, if the chairman said you were going someplace, you went there. <laughs> so my chairman told me I was going to go to Hopkins. Or he told, actually, that's not exactly what he said. He said, said I should go up there and interview. 
So he told he told me I was going there to interview. He told them I was coming there to interview. So <laughs> my interviews weren't interviews. It was just orientation. Yeah. Because he basically they understood that once he told me I was coming, I was coming. Uh, when I got there, remember Grady's, the Grady's was really clinically my class. And we, we, we knew this kind of stuff. My class, I think, was something like on the on the uh, on the clinical parts of, of national boards. I think we were number one or two in the United States on the clinical part and in the lower 50th percentile in basic sciences. So we had basically an, or a clinically oriented group of physicians who could do pretty much whatever they wanted to with their hands as long as they were in front of a patient. But on test, in basic sciences, we didn't do that well. What, what that means when I went to Hopkins was they put me in the emergency room and in, in the delivery suite in my first two rotations because we had two people there who were from the Grady's at that point in time, and they both knew that I could handle the emergency room and delivery suite. And that would give them time to tune up the people who come out of some of the more academic hospitals where people hadn't seen a lot of hands-on experience. So my first year, I'm at the top of the, I'm at the top of the heap because I know more clinically how to handle myself as an intern than almost anyone else in my internship class, except for one or two who'd done surgery residencies before they came in. Yeah. So we had a few like that. By the second year, they they learned everything I'd learned at the Grady's, and all of a sudden that background knowledge that, that people from other programs had in basic sciences showed up and all of a sudden went from being one of the more productive people to one of the less productive people. By the third year, we'd all caught up with each other because most of us who were that program, we're not going to let anybody get too far ahead of us for too long. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so at Hopkins, you know, this was at the time when, you know, a lot of, you know, IVF was starting to, was, was it being thought of at that time or was, was, so, it, was it still preceding that a little bit? So while we were there, Steptoe and Edwards used to come visit. Okay. And they would come visit to talk, talk to the uh, Joneses and they talked to the endocrine division about what was going on in their plans for in vitro fertilization. We were listening to this before it was done. Uh, we got to listen to a lot of the early uh, in vitro fertilization failures. I think Steptoe had something like what, 103 or 105 failures before he finally had a success. So we got to hear about all of those and understood exactly uh, how hard this was going to be to make it work. So, so in the reproductive unit at that time, it was the Joneses, you, who else was part of that group? Ann Wentz was there and uh, uh, John Tyson. Gotcha. And, um, and, and Kadiyama, and Kadiyama. Okay. And, and at that time, since there wasn't a lot of IVF going on, what was, what was the practice like of REI at that point? It mostly had to do with ovulation induction, trying to determine what FSH low, how, what type FSH could we do pure FSH inductions? And we always have to have FSH and LH. Uh, what, were, what were the morphologic changes that were going on? Uh, how did cells respond a lot on polycystic ovarian disease, a lot on ovulation induction. Mm -hmm. uh, and Georgiana Jones was doing her, uh, her work on, on luteal phase defects. And gotcha. I think had it not, I think had it not been, had they not gone to, uh, had they not gone to Virginia when they went, 
I think she had some things on luteal phase defects that would have found it coming before Carmina and uh, Ricardo Aziz did to show the androgen aspects of all of that in terms of its how much androgens could affect luteal phase defects. Hmm. So, so at that point, what was your role within the division? Were you the were you the surgeon? No, my, I was the educator. You were the my, educator. I had I had two different positions. My I was I was a divisional director of medical education for the medical students and the residents, and I was also a fellow who just went to the clinics with everybody. And then you were at, at Hopkins for how many years? Uh, five and a half years. And then after those five and a half years. So right at the beginning of the, toward in the middle of the fifth year, Ann Wentz went to the University of Tennessee. Hmm. Okay. So she became the divisional director at the University of Tennessee. And Brian Cohen, who had done this first successful tubal transplants in South Africa. Remember that Christian Bernard did the first heart transplant at, at Cape Town and Brian Cohen was in the same hospital center. Okay. And they were trying to transplant everything in that center. Okay. And Brian was a gynecologist who did, the, who did the tubal transplants. So Brian had done tubal transplants by 1971, 72, or excuse me, by 74, and had come to, uh, had come to University of Tennessee to be with Ann Wentz. And Ann called me up and said, if I asked ask if I wanted to come down and join her and Brian Cohen. And this was back when microsurgery is just beginning. Howard Jones, Howard Jones always believed that he could do everything with loops and didn't need a microscope. And from everything I was reading, I needed a microscope. So the, the chance to go and be with Brian Cohen and with microsurgery down there was just a bonus for me. Plus they needed, they needed people who could train laparoscopy. I've been part of the international education program for laparoscopic uh, procedures, particularly tubal ligations. At the time I was a fellow also. So I was at that JAPIGO program. I was one of the administrators for that in terms of getting people in and out of different countries to do education. So now you're in Tennessee and you're, you're educating, you're operating a little bit more, I'm guessing, really starting to pick up your surgical volume. Basic, basically, I had a surgical volume that was enough that uh, I made a lot of money for the, hot, for the department. I was yeah. one of the cash cows. Gotcha. gotcha. I'm doing that much surgery there. Right. And so you, you, you started to um, see a lot of changes, I'm guessing, in, in the world of laparoscopic surgery. What, what, what were some of those pivotal things that you saw at that time that really was starting to change how laparoscopy was being done? The bigger changes in laparoscopy. So I, I was at UT probably a year or two before the, what well, I was at UT a year or two before the major changes in laparoscopy start happening. So that would have been 77. Okay. Kurt Sims starts, starts publishing and presenting at meetings about 77, 78. And by 79, Sims in Germany and the, the group in Clermont-Ferrand with uh, Maurice Bruja and Michel Canis was one of his fellows. And also the group in Jerusalem were all with uh, Tadir were beginning to do major procedures the groups in France and Israel were all using lasers. Uh, Kurt Sim was using his endo, endothermal, endothermal device, which was one of the pure, one of the few real cautery units that was ever used. Uh, and 
there was some, there was just ongoing development of what we were going to do. So we, so the, the things in Germany started off being uh, excision of endometriomas, and with lasers, it was vaporization of endometriosis. By the late 80s, 8081, by the late 80s, Kurt Sims had already published that vaporization and coagulation were not going to be effective for nodules because they were too deep. And coagulation wouldn't be effective because it was you, you couldn't get it past two to three millimeters effectively. Yeah. Uh, and laser, because once you got past one or two or three millimeters, it was almost like operating in no man's land. You didn't know exactly how much further you should go. And very few people thought that they could judge distant, ac distance accurately past about one or two millimeters with the laser. So if you're going to go deeper than that, you had to at least excise, you had to know excision to get down past the general base of it. And all that becomes really apparent by 1981. And Sim and uh, Bruja both came to the United States in 1981 and, and discussed that. Sim was at the AGO meeting in uh, Phoenix and Bruja was at the uh, at one of Joe Bolina's meetings in New Orleans. And they both, they both had the, almost the same story, except two different approaches on how to do it. Right. And that was to really get this done. We have to get back behind, for large nodules. We're going to have to get back behind it. Uh, so it was easy for me. And by that point, since we're doing lasers in college, I, I had a, a college degrees in, in, in physics, but more important, our department did two different, two major things. One was ran the part of Oak Ridge and the other one would help was with a trend with a, communication satellites, hmm. not satellites, communication towers and community communication towers at that point in time use masers. So it's microwave amplification to get the signals going. So I had good background in maser work. So shifting to surgical lasers was fairly easy for me just as far as a technical change. So it sounds like lasers was one of these big things that changed how you were doing laparoscopy. Yeah. And, and, and is that what pushed you more into, I mean, you're, you're clearly were operating on endometriosis at that time anyway. Did that change how you approached endometriosis cases? Oh, yeah, tremendously. Because all of a sudden, instead of having to open somebody for the nodules, we could do them laparoscopically. For, for you know, by the middle 70s, middle 70s, we could do we could coagulate the endometriosis with a laparoscope. But now we can start doing almost, we can start doing deeper excisions of nodules. And this progresses till about 1979. So by 80, 87, 86, 83. So 81, Padir and Bruja were there. By 85, I'm publishing on excision. By 89, David Redwine is going into bowel surgery. And uh, so it goes from excision of nodules that were not on vital organs like bowel and bladder to excision of bladder and bowel by, by the late 1980s. And then it's just, then the, then the thing just takes off. Yeah, yeah, things, things move pretty quickly. Anything, anything. anything. So by, by the late 80s, early 90s, uh, laparoscopists are doing gallbladders and kidneys and whatever they thought of doing. 